Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank uh, our witnesses for being here today. This morning we'll discuss U.S. policy towards Venezuela. We ask our witnesses to address three questions. Maybe that's why we have three witnesses. Uh, what are our interests in Venezuela? What policy outcomes should we seek in Venezuela? And what policy tools will get us to that outcome? Um, Venezuela is a beautiful country with vast resources and talented people, and yet the situation there is very bleak. In 2015, Caracas suffered 119 homicides per 100,000 people compared to 4.9 per 100,000 here in the United States the same year. As we'll hear today, the mismanagement of Venezuela's economy inflicts shortages, hyperinflation, uh, unemployment, and on ordinary Venezuelans. Not only has the Venezuelan government protected people wanted in the U.S. for drug trafficking, but Venezuela's president has appointed known drug traffickers to high office, such as the current vice president. Venezuela's government blocked an effort by citizens to petition a recall referendum against President Maduro and failed to hold regional elections in December 2016. The government actually actively represses dissent, a leading Venezuelan human rights group, list 117 people jailed for political reasons. This committee has twice enacted legislation authorizing targeted sanctions, and to date, in four separate actions, the U.S. unilaterally imposed targeted visa sanctions on more than 140 Venezuelans, including security forces for human rights abuses and corruption. The U.S. has moved to punish violations of our laws. On three occasions, the U.S. has named Venezuelan officials under the drug kingpin statute. These designations include former Minister of Defense, a governor, an army general, a National Guard captain, a member of the National Assembly, and now the Vice President. The U.S. has indicted high-ranking military officials and investigated criminal money laundering involving Venezuela by a bank in Andorra. In the Western Hemisphere and Europe, governments have raised growing concern about the situation in Venezuela. However, they have not joined the United States in applying targeted sanctions. Given the standards we apply, our government has no doubt about criminal activity and corruption in the Venezuelan government. Today, I hope uh, we can also evaluate whether sanctions have altered the Venezuelan government's behavior and why other governments have not joined us in this effort. The Union of South American Governments supports a political solution through dialogue between the government and opposition. While this effort continues, the mediation faltered when the Venezuelan government failed to meet its commitments. Recent polls show that more than 60% of Venezuelans polled favor addressing the country's problems through dialogue and 28% favor ending the dialogue. There are differing views in the opposition over this question. The Organization of American States supported the dialogue, but the Secretary General of the OAS, on the other hand, released a well-documented critical report on Venezuela and invoked the Inter-American Democratic Charter. It is worth noting that Ecuador, which is also a polarized country, recently held the first round of its presidential election with OAS observation. And by a margin of less than 1% of the vote, Ecuador will proceed uh, to a runoff election, something that's quite surprising and yet uh, very, very positive. With that, I'll turn it over to Senator Cardin for his opening statement. Again, we thank you for being here and uh, look forward to your testimony and the questioning that will follow. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much uh, for convening this hearing on Venezuela.
Uh, I join you in welcoming our distinguished panel of witnesses. Uh, I will make the same observation that uh, Senator Menendez made at our last meeting, that it's wonderful to have uh, private sector experts. What we need to do is make sure we follow that up with uh, meeting with the Trump administration officials that are responsible for these policies. Unfortunately, many haven't yet to be named. Uh, but this hearing is extremely important, and I thank you very much for calling uh, this hearing. Uh, this is a man-made calamity. Venezuela is a beautiful country, and the people should not be suffering the way they are suffering. It's heartbreaking humanitarian crisis, broken down hospitals, people starving on the streets, an economy that's in shambles. This is a failing state, make no mistake about it. And we have a direct United States security interest in reversing what is happening in Venezuela. The regional stability of countries such as Colombia, Brazil, and our Caribbean countries, all are very much directly impacted by the current crisis in Venezuela. There's one person who's responsible for this, and that's President Maduro. Uh, he has become an authoritarian, authoritarian leader, uh, which is unacceptable. He's denying basic rights to its citizens. Uh, the, the electoral rights are being very much compromised. He's stripped the legislature of its constitutional authority. Uh, he has political prisoners now ranging in the hundreds. Uh, and equally disturbing, uh, he is uh, administering a government that is uh, full of corruption. Uh, what is extremely disheartening is that Venezuela's oil wealth is being taken for corruption. What is even more tragic, as people are starving, the government's making money off of the food distribution, stealing food from its people in order to fuel the corruption of its government. That has to shock the world. So we need to take action. Of course, there's widespread, uh, as the chairman pointed out, widespread uh, government officials involved in narcotics trafficking, uh, which uh, also affects our own country. So, Mr. Chairman, what is the appropriate role for Congress as we start uh, this congressional session? First and foremost is oversight, and this hearing is an important part of that oversight that we can get the information we need in order to be a partner in trying to reverse what is happening in Venezuela. Secondly, we should look at bipartisan legislation, and I am working on bipartisan legislation with Republican colleagues that would authorize humanitarian assistance so we could be more effective in helping the people of Venezuela, that we engage our regional partners. A point that the chairman made is absolutely correct. If we're going to have an effective policy to bring about change in Venezuela, it's one thing for the United States to act, but we have to act with our regional partners, and we have to use the multilateral diplomacy, including the OAS, and the OAS has to be more effective in restoring democratic governance in Venezuela. Uh, under the Obama administration, we have used sanctions. I think those sanctions are important. I think we can strengthen those sanctions. And we can certainly work with other countries to make sure that the sanctions become more effective because other countries enforce uh, and uh, uh, support our use of those sanctions. So I look forward to hearing from our witnesses as we determine how we can try to change the course in Venezuela. The current course is unacceptable. Thank you very much for those comments, uh, for the rest of the uh, members for being here. And with that, I'd like to introduce our first witness, uh, Dr. David Smildy currently a professor of social relations at Tulane University and 
who has researched and written extensively about Venezuela. Thank you for being here. Did I pronounce your name properly? Thank you so much. Our second witness today is the Honorable Mark Fierstein, proper, who served as Senior Director for Western Hemisphere at the NSC under President Obama. Thank you so much for being here, sir. And our third witness is Dr. Shannon O'Neill, a Senior Fellow for Latin American Studies and Director of the Civil Society Markets and Democracy Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. We thank you for being here. And if you could each give your testimony in a summarized form in about five minutes or so, without objection, your written testimony will be entered in the record. And if you would just proceed in the order introduced, we would appreciate it. And if you would begin, Doctor, thank you. Chairman Corker, members of the committee, thank you very much for this opportunity to testify about the Venezuela crisis and options for U.S. policy. Venezuela has been the subject of my professional activity for the past 25 years. I first went to Venezuela in 1992 to do dissertation research, and I've been writing about it ever since. It's also an issue of intense personal interest. In Venezuela, I formed my family, raised my children, and spent 14 of the last 25 years. Many of my closest friends and most valued colleagues are in Venezuela. With great dismay, I have watched them suffer from a government that has radically mismanaged their economy and society and is blocking democratic and constitutional efforts at change. The United States policy towards Venezuela should focus on facilitating the reestablishment of a democracy in which human rights are fully respected, including citizens' rights to decide what kind of government they want and who they want to lead it. In my view, the program of targeted sanctions rolled out in March 2015 is not the right policy for this goal. While these sanctions definitely provide a signal that the U.S. is against human rights violations, they also fit nicely in the Maduro government's international conspiracy theories and thereby strengthen its interpretation of events. Furthermore, rather than being developed in concert with regional partners, the U.S. sanctions have been conceived and imposed unilaterally. Far from spurring regional allies to action, this unilateral character makes it more difficult for them to act with reference to Venezuela. Finally, while these sanctions have clear targets and can, and can be attributed to concrete behaviors, there is no obvious path for easing or lifting them in response to changes. Thus, they effectively increase the exit costs for these officials and thereby increase their loyalty to the Maduro government. It might be responded that even if sanctions raise the exit costs of sanctioned officials, this will be outweighed by the deterrent effect on non-sanctioned officials. But the evidence suggests this is not the case. To the contrary, conditions of human rights and corruption have only gotten worse in the past two years. This failure is not because the sanctions went unnoticed in Venezuela. In fact, their rollout in March 2015 was news in Venezuela for, month, for weeks and months. And it's not because only seven officials were sanctioned. Deterrence is supposed to work through a social observation effect, and that should be effective whether seven or 70 officials were sanctioned. Fortunately, there are policy alternatives. First, given the marked deterioration of Venezuelan democracy and the diversification of the political tendencies in the region, it is likely that work through multilateral institutions could come together in a way it has not in recent years. OAS Secretary General Luis Almagro's invocation of the Democratic Charter in June 2016 was discussed but put off by OAS member states to see if progress could be made through a dialogue. Over six months has passed and it is clear that the, government, the Venezuelan government has used the dialogue process to buy time and deflect change. It is time for the Democratic Charter to be taken up again. The United Nations also has considerable potential to act with reference to Venezuela. 
a peace building initiative like the one that was carried out in El Salvador in the late 1980s could be effective. Alternately, the UN Secretary General could name a special representative to Venezuela. There are regional institutions that the United States is not part of, but which could be supported. Venezuela is on the rocks with Mercosur, but remains a member. Mercosur has a democratic clause aimed at protecting human rights that could still be invoked. There's also considerable space for bilateral and multilateral diplomacy. I've been encouraged by President Trump's discussions of the Venezuelan case with the presidents of Argentina, Panama, and Peru. Consulting with regional partners needs to have a, a central place in the formation of U.S.-Venezuela policy. A, group, uh, a, a potential a group of friends of Venezuela containing diverse countries could be organized to develop common criterion approaches. Such a group could emerge in the region without U.S. involvement, like the Contadora group in Central America in the 1980s. If it does, the U.S. would be wise to support it. Finally, continued efforts at dialogue should be supported. While the October-November dialogue was unfruitful and the Venezuelan opposition is right to have refused to return to the table under current conditions, it is an option that should remain alive. In an economic or political crisis, having international facilitators with established relationships close by could be vital. Compared to unilateral actions, the path of diplomacy I'm recommending is slow and frustrating. It requires a lot of energy and it does not offer flashy optics but in the long run, it is more likely to succeed and less likely to lead to the unintended consequences of unilateral policies. Thank you. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, I want to thank you for the opportunity to testify today. Let me begin by commending the committee for holding this hearing. In a hemisphere otherwise full of opportunities for the United States, there is one glaring crisis that demands action by our government and other countries in the region, and that is the autocratic rule and economic collapse in Venezuela. The Venezuelan people have been victimized by their government's incompetence and malfeasance. The country with the world's highest oil reserves suffers from the world's highest inflation and deepest decline of GDP. At the same time, military and civilian officials are plundering the country and enriching themselves, siphoning scarce resources, and trafficking in illegal drugs. Venezuelans are already fleeing to Colombia, Brazil, and Caribbean neighbors, and a larger refugee crisis is increasingly likely. President Nicolas Maduro has compounded his economic misrule with political repression. Scores of political prisoners sit in jail for exercising their fundamental rights to express themselves freely and assemble peaceably. The opposition-controlled National Assembly has been stripped of its authority, and electoral authorities quashed a presidential recall referendum and arbitrarily postponed regional elections. While Maduro denies the existence of an economic crisis and human suffering, the Venezuelan people continue their courageous struggle to restore democracy. In December 2015, voters overcame a skewed electoral process and voted overwhelmingly for opposition candidates for the National Assembly. Venezuelans have participated in large-scale protests against the government. Millions were prepared to participate in a referendum to unseat Maduro, and the political opposition agreed to participate in a dialogue with the government. The solution to Venezuela's economic and political crises will largely come from inside Venezuela. An outcome cannot and should not be imposed from the outside. That said, there are important steps the United States should take in concert with other countries to help end the suffering of the Venezuelan people 
and restore respect for democratic norms. First, the administration should publicly and privately insist that any political transition be peaceful and constitutional. A democratic transition could be achieved by a variety of legitimate means, including by reviving the recall referendum process or moving up next year's presidential elections. Second, the United States should be clear that the opposition should not be compelled to suspend protests to participate in a dialogue with the government, as other international actors have insisted. The administration should mobilize like-minded countries to warn Venezuelan authorities that anyone who orders or participates in violence against demonstrators will be held accountable by the international community. Third, the administration should signal it would consider supporting opposition proposals to offer guarantees to government figures who facilitate a democratic transition. Fourth, the administration should continue to refine the plans ordered by President Obama to deal with a range of contingencies in Venezuela, including a worsening of the humanitarian situation, an increased flow of refugees into neighboring countries, and a transition to a government committed to democracy and economic reform. Fifth, the Trump administration should encourage other countries to join the United States in imposing sanctions on Venezuelan officials for engaging in massive corruption, abusing human rights, and dismantling democracy. Finally, the Trump administration should continue Obama administration efforts to build support at the Organization of American States to invoke the American Democratic Charter, which offers tools to defend democracy. OAS member states should impose consequences on the Venezuelan government for continuing to hold political prisoners, canceling the recall referendum, and shackling the National Assembly. Such external pressure, combined with domestic mobilization within Venezuela, is essential for any internal dialogue or international mediation to succeed in bringing about a democratic transition and meaningful economic reform. Although patience with the Maduro government in the region has been exhausted, invoking the charter will not be easy. Most of the region has preferred to delay action while the Vatican mediated dialogue between the government and opposition sputters along. Unfortunately, the Trump administration is poorly positioned to marshal, to marshal regional efforts to defend democracy. The president's attacks on the American press, judiciary, and critics of his administration have eroded the moral authority of the United States. And the administration's alienation of some of our closest allies, including Mexico, has undermined our ability to organize international efforts in Venezuela. As noted, there are steps the Trump administration should take to have a positive impact in Venezuela. But unless the president alters his posture domestically and internationally, the United States will sideline itself diplomatically and advocates for democracy and human rights might have to look to other countries to champion the cause of the embattled Venezuelan people. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I look forward to your questions. Dr. O'Neill. Good morning. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and the other members of the committee, thank you very much for the invitation to testify today. As has already been noted, Venezuela is facing an unprecedented economic, political, social, and humanitarian crisis. Once the wealthiest country in South America, today the majority of the population lives in extreme penury, unable to find basic food and medicines or to keep themselves and their families safe. One of the region's longest standing democracies, it has fallen into authoritarianism. Now this economic and political decline matter for the United States. 
challenging the prosperity, the security, and the democracy in the Western Hemisphere. Venezuela remains an important oil supplier linked to U.S. refineries. The government's openness and, in some cases, active collaboration with drug traffickers, organized crime networks, and other nefarious actors undermines U.S. regional security efforts. Venezuelan's humanitarian crisis is spurring the exodus of tens of thousands of refugees, straining the resources and the potential stability of Venezuela's neighbors. And its repressive politics are an affront to and in contradiction with the long-standing democratic norms within the region. Now, while change will likely have to come from within the nation, there are things the United States can do to support reformers and to prepare to alleviate the suffering of the Venezuelan people if and when a shift happens. So let me lay out briefly these policy options. The first are sets of unilateral measures. And here, these include sanctions, as well as a CFIUS investigation here in the United States. On sanctions, the United States should use targeted individual sanctions against government wrongdoers. Through the State Department and Treasury Department, the US can ban human rights abusers, corrupt officials from entering the country and from using our financial system. And as opposed to blanket sanctions, which would hurt the larger population, these targeted efforts are more effective in circumscribing the lives and livelihoods of the guilty. And they are the right thing to do upholding our domestic and international laws. The United States can and should also delve into Venezuela's recent financial transactions, and specifically its use of US-based CITGO assets to collateralize its loans. CIFIA should investigate bond purchases by the Russian state-controlled oil company Rosneft, who may, in the case of default, actually gain majority control of this critical refinery infrastructure here in the United States. Multilateral initiatives are perhaps more important and potentially more fruitful uh, as a means to influence Venezuela. Now, this will mean working behind the scenes to galvanize opposition and condemnation for the Maduro regime. This will be more effective than U.S. efforts alone, as it will be much harder for the Venezuelan government to dismiss the criticisms and the actions of its South American neighbors as imperialist overreach. And such a coalition is much more possible today than in any time in the recent past, due both to the accelerating repression and the breaking of the last democratic norms in Venezuela, and due to the very different stances of South America's recently elected leaders, particularly in Peru, in Brazil, and in Argentina. The OAS remains a venue and an instrument to focus these efforts. The US should call on the organization to again invoke the Inter-American Charter and to evaluate Venezuela's democratic credentials and its compliance with them. And this could lead potentially to sanctions and suspension of Venezuela from this multilateral body. And then finally, the United States should begin preparing for change. If the Maduro regime is forced out or it collapses, the country will likely face humanitarian, economic, and financial chaos. And there are two particular things the United States can start preparing for. The first is a wave of refugees. This will hit Venezuela's neighbors the hardest, Brazil, Colombia, Guyana, nearby Caribbean nations. And it's important to help them with money, with supplies, potentially with personnel, and to back international NGOs and multilateral efforts to ease the suffering of these people. The second aspect to prepare for is a restructuring of Venezuela's finances and its economy. A new government will need to renegotiate 
$140 billion worth of external debt, whether or not the government has already defaulted upon it or not. And this massive undertaking will likely require an IMF rescue package and the backing of the international community and creditors. The U.S. will be vital in facilitating this, as well as in helping a new government take the tough economic policy choices to turn the economy around. These will include freeing the exchange rate, reinducing market prices, creating sustainable policies for the poor, and rooting out corruption. And though this is complicated, the faster it occurs, the faster Venezuela's economy will grow again. For those who care about Venezuela and its people, it can seem that the United States' hands are tied. Nevertheless, and despite the lack of immediate results, it's important to put in the time-consuming and quite delicate work of diplomacy, building a regional coalition to pressure and to condemn the actions of the current Venezuela regime. It's also important to prepare for change, however that may come. And at the current juncture, these efforts are vital for both helping Venezuela's reformers in the country today and for bettering the lives of its citizens in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll, I'm going to reserve my time for interjections and turn to our ranking member, Ben Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank all three of you for your testimony. We haven't heard a lot about getting humanitarian aid into Venezuela. We have an immediate problem, and I'm not sure we have an answer for dealing with the people who are suffering in the country uh, because of the ineffectiveness of their government to be concerned about this humanitarian crisis. We look at ways in which we can change the direction here, and it starts with the governance when you have a corrupt government, it's going to be very difficult to see uh, international organizations willing to come in to help refinance their economy. Even though they have wealth, it's going to be difficult to figure out how that takes place unless they have basic changes in the way their government's doing business. Um, and we don't see any indication that that's taking place. So you've made a couple suggestions. One is that we need to work with our regional partners, which I fully agree. So let's start with OAS, which is the entire uh, region, as to whether it's realistic that the democratic charter provisions can in fact lead to a change in Venezuela. Ultimately, it will require us to, to have the threat of at least two-thirds of the countries if we're going to be able to, get, to invoke the charter with some teeth. What is the likelihood that OAS could be effective as a real force in bringing about change by the Maduro government? Mr. Farrestein? Uh, well, thank you very much for that question, and, and actually, if I can hit on your, your two other points as well. First, with regard to humanitarian assistance, uh, under the Obama administration, USAID, in fact, did put together a contingency plan uh, to provide assistance uh, if, in fact, if and when the Venezuelan government is willing to receive it, and USAID has a warehouse in Miami and is prepared to provide assistance. I know other international organizations are prepared as well. Um, there has been some dialogue between the government and the American Development Bank. Um, with regard to economic reform, though frankly at fairly lower levels and there's no indication uh, that at senior levels that they're inclined uh, at, at serious attempts at economic reform. With regard to the OAS, I, I think that the, we're much better positioned now than we were a couple years ago. And that's because of some, key, some changes in some key governments in the region, Argentina, Peru, uh, Brazil, 
there was a reference to uh, Ecuador, potential change there uh, as well. And I think that patience has clearly run out with Maduro. I think countries are more inclined now to take action. There has been a hesitation to do so as long as the dialogue was alive and as long as the Vatican uh, was engaged. Uh, one of the challenges has been with regard to the Caribbean countries, uh, which received significant uh, petroleum assistance uh, from, the, from Venezuela, and that has somewhat silenced them, and there's been some divisions within the Caribbean. Uh, that said, I'm hopeful that in the coming months, uh, that as, as the situation deteriorates in Venezuela, um, and as that it becomes clear that the dialogue cannot be successful unless there is more pressure. And I think there needs to be three forms of pressure. There needs to be uh, domestic mobilization uh, within Venezuela in the form of protests. I think there needs to be additional sanctions applied by the United States and other countries. And I think there needs to be uh, action within the OAS, including a threat of suspension of Venezuela from the organization of, if, it, if it does not comply with the Inter-American Democratic Charter. Dr. O'Neill, what countries in the region do you think are more, most likely to join in a strong effort, including the uh, OAS invoking the Democratic Charter, or joining us in sanctions? Which countries should we be looking to? Sure. We've heard from the leadership of Peru, um, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, the new president, has come out forcefully condemning the regime. Um, we have heard from Medicio Macri in Argentina as well, um, statements particularly opposing political prisoners and, and the lack of freedom of expression there. Um, we've heard from others and there have been agreements that have been signed. We've seen Mercosur actually suspend uh, Maduro, or expend Venezuela from the Mercosur bloc, especially led by Paraguay, as the most vocal uh, opponent of what was happening in Venezuela. So I do think there are strong voices there. We've also seen several foreign ministers, including Mexico and Colombia and others, sign uh, a, a memorandum, again, condemning um, the limits on political freedom in Venezuela. So I Will do- Will they join us in sanctions? I think some of them will if we build this diplomatic coalition, and that will take a lot of hard work. I, I would say that um, the uh, current tensions, um, particularly with Mexico, um, between the United States and Mexico, and the language going back and forth, is hurting our cause to build this coalition. Um, I think Latin American countries, um, on the one side, they see us as unreliable partners, um, turning on one of our closest allies um, just here in the last couple of months. So there's a challenge there. Do you step up and, and introduce sanctions or agree to sanctions when you're worried about where the United States might turn the next day. And then the other thing that's happening in Mexico I want to put on the table is actually much of the hostility or the, the tensions that are happening in the relationship has been strengthening the leftist candidate there in the upcoming 2018 presidential elections, Lopez Obrador. And he and many of his advisors actually have been on the record in the last few weeks uh, supporting the Maduro regime. So it's possible that some of our tensions, we may lose a potential ally in this uh, situation with Venezuela. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yes, sir. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. I want to concentrate on the uh, national security concerns as it relates to the United States here. And uh, Dr. O'Neill, in, in your testimony, you said Venezuela is willing to permit drug traffickers, organized crime networks, uh, potential terrorists. But I want to start with the current and potential refugee flow. Uh, what is the current refugee flow out of Venezuela? And if it's not, if, if we anticipate a collapse of the Maduro governor, government, that it would increase, why isn't it increasing now? 
we've seen tens of thousands of individuals leaving Venezuela. Some are going into Brazil, many are going into Colombia. We've seen them uh, fleeing to nearby Caribbean islands, so fleeing by boat as well. So many people are leaving. Um, there is, I think, a potential for a much larger refugee crisis. And partly the borders have been closed at various times by the Venezuelan government, by the military, so people it's difficult to leave. Uh, in part, they don't have the resources to leave. You actually need resources often to leave countries. But I think there is a pending crisis. One is if um, we see a further deterioration on the economic side of things, or we see a further increase in violence, a sort of falling, a collapse of the state. And one of the populations I think is most vulnerable or most likely to move is uh, a large population in Venezuela, roughly five million Venezuelans who are actually of Colombian origin. Um, those Colombians came actually to flee violence in their own country from the FARC and from the challenges there. Uh, many of them, they were made citizens actually by Hugo Chavez during, um, in 2008, 2009, when he was uh, holding a referendum and they voted for him, supporting him in the referendum. Um, but now you could imagine those populations with strong ties back to Colombia might leave if given the ability and chance and if things deteriorate more fully. And that creates problems for stability for Colombia, and particularly when Colombia is in a very fragile place, when they're trying to implement their new peace process, when they're trying to bring back the FARC and others into the fold. Imagine dealing with this humanitarian crisis. So who are the bad actors outside the hemisphere and, and within the hemisphere that uh, also represent a security uh, problem for us? The drug traffickers, transnational criminal organizations, uh, potential terrorists. I mean, who's setting up shop there? Who's, who's utilizing the, the failed state uh, that could threaten our homeland? Most of them are drug trafficking networks. They're drug trafficking networks that bring cocaine or, or coca out of Colombia, out of other Andean countries there that are now using Venezuela as a transit point, a transit point that comes up through Central America in the Caribbean to the United States. Um, a transit point that sends uh, cocaine to West Africa and then up into Europe. So those are the main um, elements that are using this this brown state, as you might say, this this ungoverned spaces for their advantage. So again, th th those would be the uh, bad actors within the hemisphere, the drug cartels. What about outside the hemisphere? I mean, are we seeing potential terrorist organizations, any ties to, uh, for example, Islamist terrorists? I have seen a few reports that there are some elements, but I have not seen a more systematic um, entrance of those groups into Venezuela. Would any of the other witnesses care to comment on my questions? I, you know, I, I've seen a number of reports in the, in the press uh, about these, uh, uh, about terrorist groups, and this has been going on for a long time, this type of information. All the, all the serious investigations I've seen have not found substance to that. I mean, I think there is um, uh, an issue of the possibility of people be being trained in the Middle East, uh, being trained in coming back and then trying to uh, enter the United States. But as far as actual terrorist groups setting up shop in Latin America, I, I haven't seen credible reports of that. So again, let me, let me go back to the, the refugee flow. Uh, to summarize, I think, what uh, Dr. Neal was saying, so the Venezuelan government is doing a pretty good job of keeping its citizens there, preventing them from leaving, and or it's just not gotten bad enough? I mean, it's pretty bad, right? You know, Mr. Fierstein, would you like to comment on that? Sure. Yeah, what we've seen so far is the Venezuelans, most Venezuelans who have left uh, tend to leave to do, to pick up some basic goods, food and medicine principally in Colombia, and then they return home. 
Uh, that said, as Shannon noted, that we've seen an increasing flow of refugees in other countries. I think we, need to, we do need to be prepared to support Colombia in, in the event of a significant flow. Uh, what, what would a significant flow be? I mean, what, what are you concerned about? Are you talking about hundreds of thousands? Uh, tens of thousands? I mean, I mean what? You know, potentially, if, if you had a social implosion in Colombia, I'm sorry, in Venezuela, uh, if the economy deteriorated enough, if, if you did have, you know, violence and, you know, civil conflict, you could potentially get those sorts of numbers. And the Colombian government has been preparing for that. Uh, in the Obama administration, we did put together some contingency plans to support Colombia. Uh, we worked with a number of UN agencies as well to put those efforts in place to prepare for that. Uh, we're certainly hoping that doesn't come to that, but that's something we do certainly need to prepare for. How much worse could it get? Well, at what point does it does that trigger a refugee flow? I mean, look, we're already talking it's about a, bad, right? I mean, we're already talking about a country with, as I noted, the highest inflation rate in the world, the deepest economic recession, and the highest murder rate uh, in the world. Uh, there is a concern uh, that the country will default on its debt. Uh, later this year. They've made a number of debt payments over the last couple of years, uh, thanks in large part to significant loans from China and from Russia. Uh, if they were to default, uh, that would deepen the economic crisis. So far, they've been prioritizing paying their debts over importing food and medicine, uh, but it's just not clear how much longer they can go on. A lot will depend on the price of petroleum, frankly, and it's yeah. risen a bit, and that's given them some breathing space. But again, we're primarily concerned about the refugee flow into Colombia. Okay. Yep. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Menendez. Mr. Chairman, uh, <clears throat> thank you for holding a timely hearing. I'm uh, particularly pleased to see that the full committee uh, is engaged in Western Hemisphere issues because sometimes in the midst of all of our global challenges, we lose sight of our neighbors to the south, which has immediate national security and national interest questions. So I appreciate you calling for a full hearing on a timely topic. <clears throat> Uh, along with a few others in this committee, I have been uh, intimately involved in paying close attention to Venezuela for some time and watching with alarm as Nicolas Maduro has followed in the repressive and brutal steps of previous dictatorships. And I want to take the opportunity of this hearing to call out names uh, of individuals who uh, suffer every day inside of Venezuela. Uh, they are the Vaclav Havels, the Lequalenses, the Alexander Solonitsins uh, of their time in Venezuela. Uh, over 100 political prisoners, Leopoldo Lopez, uh, leading opposition leader whose only crime is uh, peaceful protest, uh, now three years in jail in a sham process. Antonio Ledesma, uh, the mayor of Caracas. Uh, Daniel Ceballos, the former mayor of Caracas. Uh, Joshua Holt, an American citizen a former missionary who married a Venezuelan a woman and is accused of being a spy. These are just some of the examples of those who are languishing under an authoritarian regime. Uh, and I think we must be clear in naming the regime which once had the faint promise of democratization in a dictatorship, because that's what it is. We've long talked about one exception to a region of democracies in the hemisphere, but tragically, Maduro has changed that. And I get real concerned when I see Cuba's influence in Venezuela. If you go to the airport uh, in Venezuela, most of the agents who will shake you down are, are Cuban agents. Uh, Cuban intelligence has uh, permeated every part uh, of uh, Venezuela's government. And so uh, it's not benign what they do uh, in the hemisphere beyond their own country. Um, and unfortunately, while well-intentioned, the Vatican brokered peace talks have failed. 
they succeeded in my view. Uh, I think they were well-intentioned, but they only gave Maduro uh, more time to dismantle democratic institutions, uh, to jail more political opponents, and to drive Venezuela's economy further into the ground. Uh, and I appreciate that the new Secretary General of the OAS, uh, uh, Mr. Amalgaro, has acknowledged as much and called for elections now instead of waiting until 2018, which would only give Maduro more time to consolidate his grip on power. But the humanitarian situation is dire. Children are, are dying of completely preventable diseases. The shells are empty of basic food and medicine. It's past time not only for the Democratic Charter to have been uh, called into play, but to actually be put into action. If Venezuela is not a place where the Democratic Charter is going to be invoked and actually pursued by the countries of the hemisphere, then the Charter uh, is really uh, of no consequence whatsoever. And for anyone questioning whether there are significant implications for the United States of Venezuela's dictatorship or potential economic collapse, I think we've heard several of them here. There are more asylum seekers to the United States from Venezuela than any other country in the world right now. A breakdown of democratic institutions, including the separation of powers and independent judiciary, has increased corruption. It's made it easier for drug and human traffickers, something that I know the chairman cares about, to operate through the country. And as we all know, uh, the administration, which I applaud, has uh, named uh, the vice president as a foreign narcotics kingpin. Now, uh, I'm pleased to have led a bipartisan and bicameral letter of my colleagues urging the administration to take actions against the administration, and I look forward to, for a continuing engagement. But I hope we can work together to hold human rights violators and drug traffickers, send a clear message. If you're going to violate rights of others inside of Venezuela, know that you're next. Know that you're next. Um, and while the Maduro regime may have sanctioned me, and forbidden my entry into Venezuela, it will not stop me from pursuing this issue. So I have one question, um, a question I posed to both Secretaries Tillerson and Mnuchin, and I'd like to get your take on it. A Venezuela state-owned oil company, Badevesa, and its subsidiary, Citgo, which has energy infrastructure in the United States, are under extreme financial pressure and may not be able to pay their bills in the near future. Under a recent deal, 49.9% of Citgo was mortgaged to Rosneft, the Russian government-owned uh, oil company run by Vladimir Putin's crony, Igor Sechin. It's also possible that Rosneft acquired other PDVSA bonds on the open market that could bring their ownership potential to over 50%. If Citgo defaults on its debts, Rosneft, an entity currently under American sanctions because of Russia's belligerent behavior, could come to own a majority stake in strategic U.S. energy infrastructure, including three refineries and several pipelines. Given the close ties between Rosneft and Putin, Putin's interest in undermining the United States, and Putin's willingness to use energy as a weapon, does this potential deal concern you? Should a sanctioned Russian company have control over critical U.S. energy infrastructure? I would hate to see uh, Rosneft uh, be the sign hanging over Fenway Park. Me too. There we go. <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, I, I concur with your reading, and I actually think this is an area where the um, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS, should actually step forward and proactively begin to investigate this. It usually happens in cases of potential acquisitions, as we've seen in, in many other cases. Um, but here, given the stipulations in these various bonds, which you lay out um, well, um, it seems as is a potential acquisition through default, and, and particularly since many economists, many investors uh, believe that there will be a default sometime in the, in the relevant future. This is a, something that I think it would be important for the United States government through CFIUS to begin investigating. Uh, any uh, one of you have a view on that? No. Is, do you have any disagreement with it? So for the record, you're both shaking your head no. I think you laid the case out so well, no one can disagree. Well, I just, I just since, 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 Mr. Chairman, we have to rely on private panels for now, at least I want to get the benefit of uh, an understanding of what those private panels view. So I thank the Chairman for his courtesy. We, uh, we set aside a good portion of this uh, work period to deal with confirmations, and um, it's unfortunate we have only one ambassador and we're waiting for Johnny Isaacson to get back to vote on him and we have none others to process. I don't think there even are any awaiting uh, after the batch we have now on the floor. So um, it's, uh, we do need to move on and, and Chairman, hopefully my, be my comments are not directed to you. They're an no, I, I didn't take it that to way. the administration because I think we can chew and walk gum. I know that my dear uh, colleague, Senator Young, had a comment for me last week. I wish he was here. We can chew and walk gum, uh, you know, uh, and, and walk at the same time, which means as we're going through cabinet officials, doesn't mean we couldn't get nominations that this committee on a bipartisan basis is generally processed very quickly. I, I couldn't agree more, and hopefully uh, those will be forthcoming. Uh, Senator Rubio. I want to thank you for holding this hearing. I think this might be the first time the full committee's done a hearing on Venezuela in a long time, and, and this is an issue I've talked about for a long time. It affects South Florida, where I live, as you can imagine. There's a significant... I want to make a... just touch on a couple of the points made here, and then it would probably lead into some question or further commentary. On the sanctions piece, and, and Mr. Smelly, I listened to your testimony, and I understand the argument. I, I do. It's kind of one of the arguments that's often made about unilateral sanctions. I would just encourage you to think about it a little bit differently the sanctions, the purpose of the sanctions aren't necessarily to influence a change in government. Here's the dynamic that's different when it comes to Venezuela. Many of these individuals, to just speak in the plainest terms, they're stealing money uh, or having access to ill-gotten gain because of their access to the government. And then they invest it, for example, in South Florida. I mean, they're just, I see them every weekend. You go to the fancy mall, they're walking up and down, and they're laughing at us. And so the problem really is about protecting the assets of the people of Venezuela that have been stolen and invested into the United States uh, for the profit of these individuals. And we just want to make sure that those assets that, quite frankly, should belong to the Venezuelan people are available when Venezuela is free and, and so that they can be held accountable by Venezuelan justice or whatever it may be. Uh, it's important because there are a bunch of cronies that surround the current government who have taken their role in government or their access to powerful people in government, used it to get access to funds, then they buy these mansions, horses, jets. I mean, it's outrageous. And, uh, and I just think it's important for that to be available to the Venezuelan people because it's their money. It didn't belong to these people. And I do think there's value in the stigma. I can tell you that for a lot of the people in the opposition in Venezuela to know that these people that laugh at them every day and are on television every night attacking them in the state-run stations that are being called out by the United States is powerful. So uh, I would ask you to consider that as part of it. You, you talk, the exit thing is real. I mean, it is true that 
these people now are figuring to themselves, we might as well stay here till the end because there's nowhere for us to go. I think that was going to be a problem anyway, um, one way or the other. There aren't that many countries they could go to probably except for Cuba at this point, and that's uh, not necessarily a great place to live, um, given the current government especially. Mr. Fierston, you talked about the OAS. I agree. And I actually think that Peru, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina have all expressed concern. I would also say, and I echo the point that Senator Menendez made, I don't know why we have an OAS if it doesn't defend democracy. That's the very purpose of it. And I do hope it becomes a priority for this administration and that we use the leverage we have. You talk about some of the things that have happened under this administration undermining our credibility in the region. I don't disagree. I disagree with many of the things that have happened and I wish that wouldn't have occurred. I would also say to you, however, it was deeply demoralizing to the opposition in Venezuela to see Tom Shannon in Haiti uh, taking Twitter pictures with Diosdado Cabello, uh, who is maybe not formally, but informally the second most powerful man in Venezuela. And uh, to see an American official of that rank taking pictures in Haiti with his arm around him is deeply demoralizing to someone who has suffered at the hands of these people. I was literally recently, Senator Menendez and I met with Lillian Tintori, who, uh, as you know, his husband has been in jail for a long time. I want people to understand what she's subjected to. When she goes to prison to visit her husband, who's in jail for doing nothing, nothing, other than being against the government, they strip her naked. They force her to take all her clothes off in front of the male prison guards who mock her and laugh at her. And, um, and by the way, the president received her at the Oval Office and took a picture with her and put it up on Twitter, which is, for this president, it's a pretty powerful thing. And, uh, and I'm glad he did that. It, uh, it, it was important. And she returned to Venezuela. So Diosdado Cabello mocks her every single day. So, for people like that, it was really demoralizing. On the dial the, to, to see Tom Shannon there doing what he did in the administration uh, at that period of time, it was just, it, it was hurtful and I think problematic. On the dialogue, and that's what I wanted to get to. I do believe it was well-intentioned, but I think Maduro used it to do two things. Number one, delay any sort of OAS action so he can get past December, right, because of the referendum period. Now if there's a referendum, he'll be replaced by the vice president as opposed to a new election. So it played right into his hands. He used it to divide the opposition, pitted them against each other. They threatened members of the opposition that if they didn't participate in the dialogue, their relatives would be punished. Some people wouldn't put up with that. Some people don't want to see their kids mistreated. Uh, I really think it's important for the United States to publicly announce that we think the, uh, the, the dialogue is over, especially as long as there are political prisoners, and really to be aggressive on the OAS front. On the USAID piece, there's a reason why we're not in there. They don't let us. The Venezuelan government does not allow open aid because they deny that there's an emergency. And so that's the, the point that I wanted to get back to is why do we need an OAS if it is incapable? And I'm in favor of the OAS. I want there to be an OAS. But why even have one if it can't act in a situation where the courts, the electoral commission, the press, uh, all is controlled by the, the president or the fake president of Venezuela, and the assembly is not even allowed to meet and pass laws. That's not a democracy. What is the purpose of the OAS if it cannot act in a case such as Venezuela? Uh, well, thank you for those uh, comments, Senator. And first, with regard to the sanctions, I very much agree with you on, on the value of, of, of sanctions. Um, with regard to the OAS, I think it's important to underscore the leadership of the Secretary General. You know, he has detailed uh, extensively what is going on in Venezuela, tried to mobilize countries in the region to take action. 
Um, as I noted before, I think we are better positioned now than we were a couple of, than we were a couple of years ago because of changes uh, in certain governments in the region, as we talked about Argentina, Peru, Brazil, and, and others. I believe that in, again in the coming months, I think that some of the, that that there is an opportunity, uh, there will be an opportunity to invoke the charter, to threaten the suspension of the OAS um, of Venezuela from from the organization. Um, and again, as I noted, I think you know we need we need three forms of pressure uh, for the dialogue to succeed. I agree with you; the dialogue has not succeeded. The government has used it to buy time, to diffuse uh, domestic protests, to keep the international community at bay. Um, but if the opposition is able to mobilize uh, internally, if we're able to apply additional sanctions and ideally multilateralize them, and if we're able to mobilize countries in the OAS to invoke the charter to threaten the suspension of the, OA, the of Venezuela from the OAS, I think then, then there would be greater prospects for a, a positive outcome uh, in Venezuela. We're good. Any other comments? Any dissenting comments? I would like to make uh, a couple of comments. The, uh, thank you, um, uh, Mr. Ru Senator Rubio, for your comments. The, uh, I, I strongly sympathize and, and support the idea of freezing the assets. I think that that's a, a noble cause and, and has uh, a good rationale to it. And, and I agree that any way you look at that, there's going to be an issue of exit costs, you know, as you suggest. What I think is that this type of sanctions program simply increases those exit costs and, and makes it that much more difficult for there to be some sort of transition. I, I don't oppose sanctions in, in every case, just, just as a matter of, 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 of principle. But I think, you know, if you look at, uh, uh, for example, Mark's uh, uh, testimony, he mentions there the issue of guarantees for government figures who facilitate a democratic transition, some sort of escape clause, some sort of uh, legislation that could make some sort of provision that would make it interesting for or make it uh, feasible for some of these figures to think, well, if I, if I take a different track, well, maybe things would be different for me. And I think that the, the other issue is that uh, is the multilateral element of it. I think if, if, you can get, if you can get these to be multilateral through diplomacy with our regional partners, well, then I think that really takes a lot of the edge off the sort of the, the anti-imperialistic rhetoric that is, that is used against them. Um, on the issue of, of aid, I think, you know, it's a really, really difficult issue in the Venezuelan government. If you can think of it from their ideological perspective, they are a government that supposedly prioritizes the well-being of people and providing for people. That is sort of their hook. And so to, to have humanitarian aid is very difficult for them. And, and it's, it's, it's a touchy political issue. But the, the dialogue agreement is actually part of the dialogue agreement. They already agreed to allow the Catholic Church in Caritas to uh, uh, bring in humanitarian aid. And I think that would be the place to push, push on that existing agreement and say that this has to happen. But it's a very difficult issue. We're really running over. I mean, if you have a really salient comment, you can make it. But uh, it's exceedingly salient, uh, Senator. But uh, no, just with regard to the anti-imperialist rhetoric, Look, I think it's always preferable if we operate multilaterally. The Venezuelan government's always going to use anti-imperialist rhetoric, whether we act or, or not act. And they are, they're going to invent things. Uh, they're very good with fake news. They're very good with alternative facts. <laughs> um, and you know, the fact is it doesn't work for them. You know, you know, they have 80, 80 90% of the people in Venezuela reject the government. Um, and I think we need to act, ideally in concert with other countries, but alone if necessary. Thank you. Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker. And I, I uh, 
didn't vote, vote in favor of increased sanctions against Venezuela. I thought then, and, and I believe now, they're counterproductive and could lead to further entrenchment of the current Venezuelan regime, and that's exactly uh, what happened. Uh, the Venezuelan people, many who oppose the government, are suffering. They're going without food, without medicine, without power, without the essentials. A, a truly democratic government would be at risk from a mass protest, but uh, that's not what we have, and yet the Chavez-Maduro regime is still in power, avoiding accountability. Demagogues like Maduro need a scapegoat, and now the U.S. sanctions are his scapegoat. Um, Mr. Smilde, are you clear that taking a hardline approach to Venezuela will likely lead to a Cubanization of our policies there? I just visited Cuba last week with a de bipartisan delegation, Senator Cochran, Senator uh, Leahy, uh, and I can report to you that not only has the embargo been a complete failure, uh, but it continues to give Cubans an excuse for the poor state of their economy. However, that has uh, begun to change with U.S. engagement. Uh, as to Venezuela, can you outline what role uh, you think the Foreign Relations Committee or others should take to encourage a multilateral effort to ensure that elections are held in 2018 and to prevent a Cubanization of policies in Venezuela? I, I think that that's a good way to put it, and I think that's, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of differences between Cuba and Venezuela. There's, there's more of a democratic tradition in, in Venezuela than there was in Cuba. Um, the, uh, the sanctions that are being proposed are targeted instead of the whole, the whole nation, so I think that, that makes it uh, somewhat different. But there is clearly a, a, a threat of Cubanization in, in the government, in the security apparatus, and I think in our approach to, to Cuba. I think uh, trying to isolate Venezuela, trying to raise barriers uh, uh, through sanctions is not the right approach. I think a better approach is, is to engage Venezuela. I think also uh, working with regional partners, you know, whether that's, uh, I, I fully support uh, pushing for the democratic charter in, in the OAS. I also think trying to work with regional partners, develop some sort of uh, a group of friends, uh, working with some of the other multilateral agencies in, in uh, South America, I think, could also facilitate it. What, what I envision, I mean, I, I simply don't think that sanctions are going to be effective in, in uh, facilitating a democratic transition. What I do think would be effective is if the region comes together, if there's coordinated efforts among these different uh, uh, regional partners, these different multilateral agencies, all to exercise pressure together and have some sort of common criteria. And I know that's very difficult. I know that takes a lot of work and, and it takes a lot of patience. But that's the only thing, that's the only way I can imagine uh, of things taking a better turn of it as well. Yeah. Okay, um, Dr. O'Neill, um, would you agree that in Venezuela, different factions now view the situation as a zero-sum game, making govern governance increasingly difficult, and, and in a way asking the question again that I ask him of how, what, what are the suggestions you would make in terms of having a democratic transition and, and getting people to pull together? I think it's been a zero-sum game for quite a while for, for many of these players, both those within the government and then some, of course, um, outside of the government. Um, my, my view is that actually targeted sanctions, the w in many of the ones that we have put in place, I think are useful. We use these kinds of sanctions against corrupt individuals, against human rights abusers from countries all over the world, whether Africa or Russia or other places, and these types of things, calling out 
naming and shaming and denying them access to the United States or to assets here, I actually think is useful. I, I'm not sure, it, to me, it does not change their calculations. They already, many of these have been involved deeply in drug trafficking rings or in other illegal activities, and I'm not sure it changes their calculation in terms of staying or going, or I don't believe it does, but, but I appreciate the, um, the different points of view on, on this issue. I do think that blanket sanctions on the country or on particular sectors would be counterproductive in trying to find a, a transition or a compromise between the various forces um, within Venezuela. Whether or not there are enough of a, a critical mass in the center that's willing to, to compromise to come together, I think that is, is really a question that we don't know. Um, as, as everyone has said here, and I would, I would concur with this, the dialogue, while with the best of intentions, um, failed um, to find that, that center. Um, and so now we need to find a different path. And it, to me, the most potentially fruitful path um, is this one that is a multilateral path and I think needs to be guided by the OAS because that is an instrument that we have to pull this together. I do think, as in the past historically in Latin America and I think today, the United States will have to play a role in leading that. There are many countries who I think could be brought on board and have said that they have opposed aspects of what the Maduro regime has been doing, but our leadership will be crucial in, in pulling that together. So I think we need to work with the Secretary General in, uh, in the OAS as well as other countries to try to bring that together. Whether it will be successful or not, we will have to see, but I do think it's our best chance in creating a peaceful transition at this point. Yeah, and obviously, as others have said, Mr. Chairman, we, we really need to take a hard look at OAS reform. Thank yeah, you very much. Uh, this is my first interjection. I, we were there in July of 15. I'm not sanctioned for some reason. And uh, it is absolutely the most tragic situation to have a country with such resources and people and to be having people lined up around stores just to, to get toilet paper. I mean, it's an incredible thing to see how mismanaged the country is. To Senator Udall's question, the, the targeted sanctions that are in place, however, um, they're not generating the economic issues that they're dealing with in any way. Is that, is that fair to say? The flip side, though, is the zero-sum game that he pointed out. I mean, we have tremendous empathy for the political prisoners, 117 of them, uh, the wife who was just here recently, what she's going through to see her husband. I mean, we have empathy for all that. In fairness, um, it has been a zero-sum game for some time. Do y'all want to expand on that a little bit? Um, thank you for that, that question, Senator. It's a, a very important issue. Um, in, a, in a previous life, I worked as a pollster, and I, and I uh, conducted public opinion polls in Venezuela. And we found, this is a few years back, we found actually that Venezuela was the most polarized country in the world. And, and a lot had to do with Hugo Chavez at the time, and I imagine the same is true today with, with President Maduro. Um, and we think our country's polarized. It's nothing compared to, to, uh, to Venezuela. Uh, that said, I think that there is the opportunity to build a more moderate center there. Now, the opposition is often branded as right-wing extremists. That is false. Um, but even around, if you look at the Chavista movement and people around Maduro, there are people around him who have been genuinely open to dialogue. There are people around him um, who have been open to economic reform. Now they've been sidelined, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but I think over time, the opposition has come to realize the importance of incorporating moderate Chavistas into their movement, 
they need to understand uh, the genuine appeal that President uh, Chavez had uh, and, and the reasons for it. And I think that they've, and they do uh, uh, understand that and appreciate that. Uh, so I think that there is an opportunity uh, for moderate leaders in the opposition to build a broader uh, coalition that would represent more than just a rejection of the current government and its policies, but a, a, you know, a genuine affirmative movement uh, in favor of particular social and economic policies. Mr. Smalby. Yes, uh, thank you for the, for the question. Um, I, I think in terms of polarizing in, 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 in both uh, sides, I think you know, there is there's a strong sense in which that's true. There's, for many people, there's a, uh, this is a zero-sum game. But I, I think that gets overplayed somewhat. I think on both sides of the spectrum. The, uh, within the opposition, of course, there is a strong uh, uh, contingent which really thinks, that they think in terms of regime change, and they think in terms of provoking uh, street protests that somehow are miraculously going to get rid of the government. But I think there's also an electoral wing, which I think actually has been the dominant wing for the past two years has really been uh, quite active since 2006 already. Those that believe that uh, elections, that this is a transition that has to happen democratically and that uh, um, can happen through elections. I think those are actually the majority within the opposition and they have dominated definitely in 2015 and 2016. The, um, I think on the side of Chavismo, it's a little bit more complex because Chavismo is very reduced now. It's approximately the last numbers I've seen, it's about 20% of the population uh, uh, supports Chavismo. This is basically people that work in the government or that are somehow mobilized in Chavista movements or somehow have a strong Chavista identity. And here with these people, I would say that this anti-imperialist rhetoric, you know, I think still actually provides a strong coordinating ideology. So I think it still is actually quite important as, as uh, um, unconvincing as it may seem to us. The, the polls also show something quite, quite interesting. While, while Maduro has approximately 20% support, still about 50%, almost 50% of the population uh, still has a positive uh, view of Hugo Chavez. And so that, of course, is down from when he died when it was 70 to 80%, but that's still 50%. So there's 30% of the population there that somehow identify as Chavista but do not support the Maduro government or somehow said, I, I don't support this. And so I think that actually the people who, are, who do not see Venezuela as a zero-sum game are actually the, the, the majority in the middle. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and I know that, um, Mr. Fierstein, you talked about the importance of regional partners to move Venezuela. I think actually all of you have done that since I got here. What does what does our policy towards Mexico do? Does that have any impact on our efforts to try and move, or the policy of the new administration towards Mexico? Uh, does that have any impact on our ability to move um, other partners in the region to try and help um, address what's happening in Venezuela? Uh, well, thank you, Senator. That's a particularly important question. And unfortunately, it does have an impact and has very much of a negative impact. I think it makes it, one, more difficult for Mexico uh, to align with the United States. Mexico is a very important actor in the region within the context of the OES. We need Mexico to help mobilize other countries. And you know, I think there's a political cost now within Mexico to be seen as aligning with the United States, even on a case like Venezuela. And Mexico previously had been, I think, inclined uh, to potentially uh, take action along with us. 
I think it's also created a certain solidarity, you know, in the region with Mexico, uh, and unfortunately revived this north-south dynamic that we thought we had buried uh, decades ago. Um, President Maduro even tried to take advantage of the rift between the United States and, and Mexico by aligning himself with, uh, with Mexico. So I think it has made it more complicated. And in fact, I would broaden it as well. I mean, we, we've talked about multilateralizing the sanctions. Additional sanctions won't likely come from um, within Latin America. They would come from the European Union, for example. And when I was in the White House, this is an issue I raised with EU counterparts. They were not inclined at the time to take action. But, you know, why we are you know, offending EU members and disparaging the organization makes it a lot more difficult, obviously, than to try to get them to line up with us uh, with regard to Venezuela. So I think overall, to the extent to which we are offending uh, allies, it's going to undercut our efforts, not only in Venezuela, but more broadly as well. Thank you. Do the rest of you agree with that? Uh, let me just say that I think, yeah, I agree with everything Mark just said. The uh, I think if you look at it beyond that, there's an interesting uh, way to think about this is that, you know, deteriorating relations between the United States and Mexico, uh, I heard one analyst say, has made Mexico Latin American again. And I think it, it, one thing to keep an eye on in, in U.S. Latin American relations is to the degree to which uh, a more... Um, a more difficult relationship with Latin America could actually spur more integration within Latin America and could conceivably uh, get them to uh, work together on some issues like Venezuela. I, I don't. I can't say that I see that happening right now, but it's, it's definitely something that if you look at the at the different stresses and pressures, that that could be happening in in the coming years. Dr. O'Neill, I would say I agree with with the way Mark um, presented it and. I think this is a challenge if there's tensions between the United States and Mexico, who for the last 30 years have been cooperative and very close partners on all sorts of things, economic issues, security issues, uh, people, the communities that span the border. If you start seeing rifts there and then you're trying behind the scenes to galvanize um, first a majority, then a two-thirds majority potentially to vote in the OAS to sanction or suspend Venezuela, it's hard when you have these other issues on the side. So I do think it is affecting um, not just how Mexico might participate in that, but the way other countries will as well. Thank you all. I totally agree. Um, you talked about a couple of different things that could be done um, outside of sanctions. Senator Rubio talked about freezing assets. Um, but what other, what other steps could we take? Um, what would American leadership on Venezuela look like, in your opinion, and in a way that would provide opportunities for other countries to follow us? I, mean, I think a challenge for us is it would be most effective if it's other countries that are leading out front. And the challenge, as, as Mark has said, if it's not something that's actually happening, Maduro and his colleagues will make it up. So it's not as if we're just providing them fodder, but if you have Peru or Brazil or Argentina or other trade partners, close partners leading, the United States can be part of it. But I think it's quite important is as we try to form a coalition that others are out front rather than putting us in the front. Sometimes, as, as Mark has said, you need to take unilateral action, and that's what these sanctions, targeted sanctions, have been. But I do think as we look towards the next several months or, or a couple of years, 
can we get others to step up that we would follow them and participate rather than us being out front? And if the OAS is not really an option at this point for leadership there, who do we think is? If we've got Mexico off the table and we've got the OAS off the table, now you talked about Argentina and Brazil and Peru having more positive leadership now, but is there a likely candidate who could um, take the lead here? Yeah, the, the most vocal with regard to this issue have been Argentina and, and Peru. Uh, President Macri has been very strong, uh, President Kuczynski as well. Um, but you know, there's a host of other countries uh, that have particularly strong views with regard to Venezuela and Paraguay, for example, uh, Panama and others. So I, I think there is the potential uh, for majority coalition uh, within the OAS in, in the coming months if we're you know, skillful diplomatically. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Kane and then Senator Rubio. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. Um, I want to go back to the discussion about the zero-sum game, because I think you were getting at my point, what I wanted to ask you about in, in different ways. I was at the Vatican last week um, dealing with them on a couple of things and talked to the Foreign Minister, Monsignor Gallagher, Archbishop Gallagher, about the work that the Vatican has tried to do you know, in the dialogue, and they're very discouraged in it, too. Obviously, the blame lies heavily with the government, but one of the comments that they also made is their, you know, their feeling about the fractured nature of the opposition. You can't really blame an opposition. If you're under tremendous pressure, there's going to be fractures. That's, that's what they try to do to you. But it would seem that you know, one of the ways we ought to be looking at this are what are the things that we could do that, create, that could help create or accelerate more cohesion among the 80% of the population that does not support Maduro, what ideas would you have for us on that? Uh, thank you, Senator. That, that's a, that's a, a key issue. I appreciate you raising that. Um, I, do, I do think I agree with you that the, it's a little unfair uh, to the opposition to characterize them that way. Um, and I think you know, it's important to underscore how much success they've had in many ways. I mean, they mobilized people for an election in 2015 in one of They took two-thirds of the National <laughs> Assembly seats. And we're talking here, you know, not about an opposition that's never, you know, been in power. I mean, these are people who have worked very effectively as mayors, as governors, as members of the National Assembly. Uh, in many ways, they've been quite uh, skillful. Uh, they came together in a coalition called the, the Mood, uh, in which, in, the, in, that, in that way, been able to operate within the context of the dialogue as well as participate in, in elections. Uh, so I think, actually, if you, and if you compare it, you know, with other democratic movements around the world, uh, I think arguably there's less fracture uh, within the opposition than there may have been in other cases. And, you know, to be sure, that there, there are differences in tactic, differences in approach. Uh, you know, the opposition ideologically probably, you know, runs from center-left to, to center-right, but I think that's a, it is a healthy thing. Um, and I think they should probably, you know, be getting a lot more credit than they've gotten so far. I, I agree that the opposition, it, while fractured, I'm not sure it's as fractured as, as somehow is, is put out there. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, you saw during the referendum drive, every hurdle that was put in front of them was, was surpassed, or many of them, until, until the final court decision. Um, but one thing that has in the past in Venezuela brought the opposition together is elections. Right, is a mechanism that you're, you're pushing towards a particular goal. And so as we look forward for, for 2017, um, there's a party registration process that is about to begin, and there's questions about who may or may not qualify there, and, and if the 
the, um, the National Electoral Committee will actually play fair in that sense. That is something that you could rally together different groups if, if it's seen unfair in terms of qualifications. And then we have pending elections that did not happen at the end of last year, uh, regional elections that may or may not be put on the table. And so I think internally a push for elections, because that is a constitutional mechanism for parties to participate in democracy, and perhaps outside as well, we can be pushing for these parts, even we know democracy is not existent there anymore, but can we push for elections? Can we push? And that's something at least to, to galvanize those that are not in power today. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Dr. Schmelde. Thank you for your question, Senator Kane. I think the, the Venezuelan opposition has suffered from two long-term problems. On the one hand, it's, it has, the problem that's most known to everybody is the problem of coordination. It has a problem of leadership in the sense that it has four or five people that all have roughly the same amount of support, all have presidential ambitions, and have a hard time cooperating for the reasons we all understand. You know, they all have ambitions, and, and uh, it often ends up to sort of a solution of non-cooperation. The, um, the other issue that's less known is a long-term deficit in actually engaging the population and actually going out and doing doing work in the communities, and, and there are some notable exceptions, but in actually engaging people that beyond their base in the urban middle classes. And those two problems, I think, have kind of come and gone. If you think 2015, I think they did a really admirable job in overcoming the problem of coordination. You know, they stuck, stuck, uh, stuck together and they swept the, the national legislature uh, elections. And that, that was no easy task. And I, and I, but the thing is, I think they, they really sort of benefited from a, what would be called a voto castigo, from a punishment mm -hmm. vote, mm -hmm. uh, more than actually having put forward a platform. So they, stu they still have this problem of engaging the population, you know, of actually going out and figuring out what people want, listening to people. I think um, if you look at the reforms that have just happened in the mood, they've just restructured, and they put a big emphasis on this. They put a big emphasis on having outreach and having social outreach, and that, we'll have to see how it plays out, but that could promise to, to resolve that engagement problem, but the leadership issue is still there, and in fact, it actually seems a little worse in their new, in their new structure, the problem with coordination. And I think, going back again to the polling, you know, the opposition is actually doing pretty well. They're above 50% in most of polling, which is good for any coalition. The, uh, uh, but on the other side of it, there's, you know, Maduro only has 20%, so there's a 30% deficit there of people who are not mobilized. And I really think that if the opposition could come together and could unify and have one leadership and have a clear leadership with a clear message, engage the popular, they could sweep the board. Thank you. I know Senator Rubio and Senator Menendez had some follow-up questions, so. Yeah, a couple quick comments to set the table for my question. By the way, I just wanted to point this out. Since Mr. Tory came to the White House, Leopoldo Lopez has been cut off from his lawyers, his family, for eight days. So that's the way they react. And on a lot of my colleagues have expressed a concern about a humanitarian collapse. I think every indication is they'll default in April, potentially, on their, on their debt. Maybe May, and that would be catastrophic. Now, here's the thing I want to say. I'll just talk about the opposition and you've already touched on it in some of your testimony, all three of you, so it's just important to remind everybody, it's important we don't ascribe civil, there's not a civil war, there's not Syria. The opposition we're talking about happens to be the majority party in the National Assembly. That's what we're talking about here. We're, and, and when we're talking about street protests and all this sort of thing that's happening in zero-sum games, it's important for everybody to understand what they are asking for is all within the framework of the current Constitution. Of, 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 of Venezuela, the, Const the Chavez Constitution. For example, what they went, they went out and, and collected 10 times the number of signatures they needed under the Constitution for a referendum to recall the president, and that was denied them. 
Uh, the, uh, they have members, imagine for a moment, we're members here, we want to travel, and President Trump denies you a visa to travel abroad. They're doing that to members of the National Assembly. So the opposition is not a guerrilla group that's armed out in the mountains attacking government troops. These are elected individuals, the majority, despite extraordinary fraud and state-run media, now they kick CNN out. So, you know, that, I think it's important for everybody to understand this opposition that we keep talking about that's fractured, they're fractured in Europe, but they have people out, out of power in Germany and France and all these other places. They have multiple parties as well. This is a democracy. It's how it works. But they're the majority party in the National Assembly. It's not an armed opposition group. It is a political movement asking for its rights under the current and existing Constitution, primarily a referendum and elections. And I think that is really, really important for people to understand. This is not the Syrian civil war, which leads me to the question. If the president or the secretary of state were here right now and they were to ask you, what is the number one thing that I, we need to do right now in Venezuela? What is the, the concrete measure that we can focus on? Would you agree that at this moment, because you know, we're not gonna get 10 things, one thing would be to use all of the energy that we have and all of the influence that we have to serve as a catalyst for action at the Organization of American States to invoke the Democratic Charter because of the, what I just outlined with regards to no respect for the current Constitution. Is that not the single most concrete thing we can do in the short term to provide the pressure necessary so that elections are allowed and then the Venezuelan people can decide what kind of government they want? Because I think we're gonna get one thing and that's what I hope we can focus everybody on and I would love to have that be a bipartisan committee consensus that that's what we should be pushing for. Perhaps you disagree, but, but is that the one recommendation and if not, what would it be? Yes. I agree, it should be that. Yes, that's what I mentioned first. So. Well then I would, great. And then I would just close by saying that among all the other com things that have been hired today, we don't have a representative at the OAS. I mean, that's the next, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll have somebody that'll be there representing us. That we need to have somebody there. And um, I think Menendez would be great. He doesn't want to do it, but uh, the, the <laughs> I just nominated you for the OAS, but I, I, I don't want to lose them in the Senate. But, um, but um, that, that really is a priority. That really, I hope what the committee will serve as a- Great 100%, Senator Menendez. Thank you. Uh, there'd be a lot of people who would be happy to see me leave. So, uh, let, let me, uh, uh, Dr. Smile, I just gotta pursue something with you because I, I need to understand this, right? So the dialogue, was the dialogue a success? No, I, I think the dialogue was a failure. I think failure. that And the dialogue was engaged, or an attempt at engagement, right? Yeah, it was, but I think these things come and go. I mean, I think you can't yeah. see it as a dialogue that just ended. These things always come and go, and they have short-term uh, impacts. I think clearly it allowed the Maduro government, it gave it some breathing room, you know, it allowed them to deflect change, but it also, I think, brought, together, brought a lot of discrediting uh, to the Maduro government, and that has an impact in, in the creation of consensus in the region. Yeah. So in that sense, these dialogue processes can have successes even in the So I, I heard my colleague uh, uh, talk about the Cubanization of the policy as it relates to Venezuela. So Europe has for decades engaged in dialogue with the Castro regime, has it not? Yeah. Uh, Latin America has for decades engaged in dialogue with the Castro regime, has it not? Yes. Canada, for a couple of decades, has engaged in dialogue with the Castro regime, has it not? Yes. And is the Castro regime any less repressive? No, because I think the United States hasn't engaged in dialogue in the it's same It's amazing degree. that the whole no. world 
But his next door neighbor. Except for the United States can engage. I, I believe in American exceptionalism in so many ways. But when the whole world is engaging in dialogue with a country for decades, when there's unlimited travel by Europeans, Latin Americans, Canadians, when there's investments by those countries in Cuba, and yet the average Cuban cannot be hired directly by that foreign uh, entity, it's pretty amazing to me. I, I think I'm all for engagement, but I think where Wola, I don't quite understand it, is engagement with dictatorships that basically own everything and don't want to give it up. And so I, I don't quite understand that view because I haven't found too many dictators that willingly, through engagement, give up their powers. And so it bewilders me at, at times. So, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I try to understand that as, as, as a successful uh, uh, strategic view when it comes to a dictatorship. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't see it. I haven't seen it happen, and it hasn't, it hasn't succeeded, so. Yes, I think, um, you know, uh, I think Wola has had a long-term uh, policy and policy on Cuba that is very similar to the policy on Venezuela, and that is that, uh, on the one hand, opposing the embargo, just like we oppose sanctions in Venezuela, and on the other hand, denouncing human rights, you know, and it's our view that isolation does not facilitate human rights, or rather engagement. Of course, there's no magic bullets, and in fact, in the Venezuelan case, from the beginning, I was, I was uh, opposed to the dialogue in the terms that it was undertaken, because I thought it should have been accompanied with continued pressure in the OAS, as well as continued street mobilization on the part of the opposition, because I think dialogue by itself on its own is, is not going to be taken seriously by the Venezuelan government. And so I don't think a dialogue is a magic bullet, yeah. but I think as one part of a, of a multilateral press, I think it Well, that, you know, that might be a different, we, we might come to an agreement on that, but I very often hear dialogue held in and of itself in the abstract as a way in which we get dictators to give up that which they own 100% of. And they're just not, in my experience in 25 years, it's just they don't, they don't do that you know, easily. Can I ask you, would you provide to the committee when Wolo uh, last spoke about human rights uh, inside of Cuba? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't work on the Cuban policy. If you, if you could ask Wola to, to submit it for the record, I'd love to see it. Okay. Thank you. Kim. Senator Cardin. Yeah, I was just want to make some observations. Uh, I don't think any of us are against dialogue. We, we want to have conversations. Uh, but I remember one of my first battles on human rights uh, dealt when I was a state legislator working on sanctions against the apartheid government of South Africa. And I just remember the conversations back then that we need to engage. We don't need to isolate. And but for the actions of imposing sanctions against South Africa, I think it could have been bloodier and longer before the governments changed. So I'm for dialogue, but I think you have to go from a point of view of strength, and you have to be willing to act in order to get the type of dialogue that can bring about results. So I appreciate the fact that we have not been as effective as we need to be, that's clear. But I would not give up on trying to find more pressure points that we can put on the Venezuelan government so that dialogue can lead to real change. And I thank our witnesses very much for their participation. I want to thank you also for being here. There'll be some additional follow-up questions, and we'll keep the record open until the close of Business Monday. If you could respond to them fairly quickly, I'd appreciate it. You know, it, it, it is... Uh, Western Hemisphere has had tremendous progress um, in recent times, and 
I appreciate uh, your focus here today in helping us on Venezuela, and we still have the issue with Cuba. It would be quite a breakthrough if uh, somehow or another these countries would return to, uh, Venezuela would return to a full democracy. We thank you for your help uh, in, uh, in thinking about how we might uh, put the pressure on and also energize others to help us in that regard. And with that, uh, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.